We're going through the book of James. We're in the second chapter, finishing the second chapter today. And uh, we come this morning to an extremely important passage. One which is at the center of the controversy between Reformation Christianity and Roman Catholic Christianity and Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Of course, one of the central doctrines of the Reformation of Protestant Christianity is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That uh, we are saved not on the basis of anything that we do, but on the basis of faith in what Christ did. And if you mention the doctrine of justification by faith alone to a serious Catholic or Orthodox Christian, he may well point you to this passage in James 2, which says, in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. As if nothing more needs to be said. And if they have a chance to make another point, they'll probably point out that Martin Luther, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation, called the book of James an epistle of straw and questioned whether it belonged in the New Testament canon. This particular claim is not completely accurate, though Luther did say James was an epistle of straw compared to other books of the New Testament which presented Christ and therefore, in his opinion, deserved first attention. And there's no evidence that Luther ever sought to remove James from the New Testament canon though he did put it at the end of the New Testament in his uh, translation of it into German along with Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. But let's look at the passage and see what sense we might make of it. James 2 verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to, him, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active among, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this has been such a misunderstood passage. And so we're going to have to take a little bit more time than usual going through the explanation part of the passage this morning before we get to the application part. We've already uh, spent three sermons since Paul began this theme of faith and works. This is one of his great burdens to communicate to believers that they must be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Now, in my opinion, the key to understanding James 2, 14 to 26 is reading from start to finish in context. Many places in scripture can't be properly understood if you jump into the middle of the passage and read this verse or that verse. So let's start at the beginning. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, this is very important. Right here from the start, James defines his terms. This verse doesn't say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? That would be a whole different thing. That would imply that it's possible to have true faith and not have works. But that's not what he says. He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he asks, can that faith save him? He doesn't ask, can faith save him? But can that faith save him? So what is that faith? Well, it's the faith that he just referred to in the first half of the verse. The faith that someone claims to have, even though he doesn't live it out. He isn't referring to real, genuine faith, but to professed, claimed faith. That kind of faith doesn't necessarily save a person. I have claimed faith, and you have claimed faith. All God's children have claimed faith. But hopefully we have more than mere claimed faith. That is, hopefully there's fruit to our, the faith that we claim to have. For faith which is devoid of fruit doesn't save, as he says. Can that faith save? No. It can't. We can all agree that mere claimed faith doesn't save. Now let's go to verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, thank you. So that's verse 14. Now we'll go to verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have, good, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith here has the same meaning as the verse before, claimed faith. Faith by itself 
here means claimed faith without the fruit of a transformed life. But then he introduces a new concept, the concept of dead faith. And we see this also in verse 26 at the very end, where he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So here he speaks of faith using the analogy of a dead body. You see, we talk about dead bodies in two different ways. If you say, I buried my, bot, my father this year, we, you're speaking as if your father's body was your father. As if the dead per- body is a person. So we speak that way commonly. But we also say, but I know he's in a better place. As if the dead body is not actually him. But the, one, the, the soul that is actually him has ascended to heaven. And so, you see, we use the word person in both ways. If I speak of a dead person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If we were gathered at a cemetery having a burial service, a small burial service, and someone asked, uh, how many people do you think there are here? Well, it wouldn't be correct for me to look around at all the thousands of tombstones and say, oh, there's thousands. Because we know that's not what we're talking about when we say people. There may be thousands of dead bodies here, but that's not, they aren't people in that context. This happens thousands of ways in all different languages and in many of our own English words. And when Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law in Romans 3.28, he's referring to faith as real, sincere, living faith. But not James. When James talks about faith here in James 2, he means faith that might be real, but might also be merely professed, merely claimed. So they're using the same word, but in two different ways. But and then verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James' point here seems to be that one person having faith and another having works is a false distinction. Faith and works belong together, one being the cause and the other being the effect. But in saying this, James has moved the argument forward in an important way. For here he explains one reason why it's so important to faith that there are also works. For here he portrays works as demonstrating the authenticity of faith. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, God can see into the heart. 
He knows if faith is genuine or not. He doesn't have to look at our lives. But we can't see into other people's hearts. So the only evidence we have as to whether a person who claims to be a believer is in fact a believer is whether they have the fruit of faith in their lives. 1 John 2.29 Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Likewise, 2, 4, and 5. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. 4.20 If someone says, someone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he is a liar. So you see, in all three of those patches from 1 John and there's others as well, John is portraying the way that you live, the, the fruit that comes out of you as the thing that demonstrates the reality of what is in you, the faith that is in you. And of course, we can't even see completely into our own hearts. So good fruit becomes important for us to evaluate the genu genuineness of our own salvation. As 1 John 2.3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And a few verses later, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And then the next chapter, 2, 5, and 6. By this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So again, over and over again, one's life is evidence of one's faith. Or evidence of a lack of faith. And this is really important for understanding this passage because this is what James is talking about. Especially when we get into verse 24, but we'll get there in a minute. Let's move down to 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, um... The word believe and the word faith are the same word. Believe is, in, in the Greek, it's the same word. Uh, believe is the verbal form of it, and then faith is the noun form. Uh, in English, we don't have a verb for faith. A person doesn't faith something. So we have to find another word to use when we're translating the same Greek word when it's used in a noun, in a verbal form. So we use the word believe. But in Greek, the verb and the noun are coming from the same word. Like, we have many words like that too, like cook. You cook and you have a cook, or plant. Or even speak and speech, or sing and song. So, 
James' point here is that the demons believing is the same as the demons having faith. So that's when he says the demons believe. You've got to take that as part of the same exact conversation about faith. Because it's the same word in Greek. Now here the meaning of the word faith seems to have shifted a little bit in James's discussion. It no longer refers to the profession of faith or claimed faith because Satan's not going around claiming to have faith in God or professing faith in God, but to what a person knows or believes to be true. Satan knows that there's only one God. So here in this verse, faith the faith James is referring to seems to be basic theism, believing in the existence of God. The demons know God exists, but they hate him and they fight him. But this new concept of faith in this verse fits very well with the view of faith that James has just been talking about. All Christians are theists, but that certainly doesn't mean all theists are Christians. Theism by itself isn't true faith. Just like mere claimed faith isn't true faith. You need more than theism and more than professed faith and more than claimed faith. Just as a dead body is not a true living person unless life is added to that body, so we need true, sincere, personal trust in Christ in order for our faith to be deemed a living faith, not a dead faith. And then to further make his point, James cites two examples, Abraham and Rahab, but first Abraham in verse 20 to 23. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, faith apart from works is useless. It's useless not only to the world, you know, it doesn't do your neighbor any good if you don't have any good deeds that you ever do for your neighbor. But it's also useless to the person who has dead faith. It's useless to them because it, it doesn't save them. It doesn't accomplish their, anything in terms of their relationship with God. He says here for Abraham that his faith was completed by his works. He's talking about the things that we can see, things which give evidence as to one whether one is saved. True faith is never alone, as we said last week. True faith and works always go together. They're part of the same package because true faith causes good works. Genesis 15.6 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
And uh, that's the passage that Paul quotes. But then that faith that Abraham had that's referred to in Genesis 15:6 was demonstrated or fulfilled in Genesis 22 later in the story where Abraham offers Isaac on the altar, if you remember that story. So it is that he had the faith, but that faith was completed or fulfilled or demonstrated when he offered Isaac on the altar. God already knew it was there, but in terms of the watching world, that's when we saw it in action. But James also says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac in verse 21. And he goes on to say in the next verse, verse 24, the next verse after the section I just read, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So now we've got to talk about the word justification. And I'm sorry, so there's two words here that are crucial. Justification and faith. James and Paul have different meanings for both words. And that's what causes the, the uh, sense that there's a contradiction between what the two of them are saying when there is no contradiction at all. So let's talk about the way justification is used in James. When you're working with a language, you only have a certain number of words to choose from to say what you want to say. And that's why sometimes one language has a better word and we pick that word up from French, for instance. We have all these French words in English. That's because they have a word that says what we want to say better than English words. We pick it up and we import it into our language. Well, that, you know, when you have a limited amount of words to use from, another thing that happens is that you tend to use one word with different meanings. This word has to do more service. It's, it's got two jobs instead of one, or three jobs. And Greek words were often taken and used in a technical sense to express Christian truths. And let me give you an example. The word elder just means old person. That's its general basic meaning. But it's taken to refer to officers who shepherd a church in the New Testament. And that's its technical or special meaning. Same thing with the word deacon. Deacon just means servant. And it's, you know, the word elder and the word deacon are used frequently, even in the New Testament, in both senses. And when, it, when it's... Uh, you know, like when Timothy is exhorted to treat the older men like fathers. It's actually treat the elders like fathers. But we know that that would be confusing if we translated it that way. Because it, there it's clearly not talking about the officers, but the older people. Because he goes on to say the older women and the younger women and the younger men, right? So we've got to uh, be alert to the fact that words are used in different ways and in particular they can be used in a general sense or they can be used in a specialized sense a technical sense in the, to have specifically Christian meaning 
Okay, so let's talk about the word now, justify. It means, just the basic meaning of the word justify is to show that something is right, to demonstrate that something is right. Um, so for, we even use it that sense in our own English language, don't we? we? We might say that the fact that around 20 GPCers got COVID this week justified canceling Sunday school and modifying, simplifying the Sunday morning activities. Well, Jesus himself used the word justify in this general sense in Matthew eleven nineteen, when he said, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And that's the sense that James is using this word. Not in the technical sense that Paul came to use it. And remember that James is not writing in light of Paul. James doesn't have the letters of Paul in his New Testament as he's writing his epistle. In fact, we think his epistle was the first thing written in the New Testament. And therefore, um, he was writing without uh, this, the, uh, the epistles of Paul and without that understanding of Paul's use of the word justify pounding in his brain like it is in ours because we're so familiar with the writings of Paul. So, as we saw earlier in verse 18, James says that works demonstrate one's faith, Right? I show you, I will show you my faith by my works. And that's the sense in which James seems to be using the word justification. He's saying that faith is demonstrated through works. Faith is evidenced by works. Faith is shown to be true by works. Inward faith is invisible. But works are visible. So all we have as evidence of a person's faith is their profession of faith, their claim of faith, and their life. The way that they, they live their lives. And that's why Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. In Matthew 7, 16. You can tell a man whether he's a believer or not by his fruits. So now let's just finish by going to 25 and 26. Where it says... And in the same way was not also Rahab the prophet justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so here he's saying the same thing. Rahab had come to faith in the God of Israel. We're given her profession of faith in Joshua 2, 9 to 13. And then her faith was demonstrated. Her faith, which was an in, inward thing, where she had, had come to have personal confidence in the God of Israel. Then her faith was demonstrated by her heroic act of hiding the spies and sending them back by another route. Her work demonstrated the genuineness of her faith. For if she just claimed to believe, but that claim was never backed up by any evidence in terms of her actions, she couldn't have been judged by as having true living faith. Last week we, uh, we said that, uh, you know, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. 
And that seems to be based on something that Calvin said. He said justification is by faith alone, but the faith which justifies is never alone. And both sides of this statement are important. If we forget that faith is by faith alone, I'm sorry, if we forget that salvation is by faith alone, then we fall into the temptation of thinking that we are working our way to heaven and that our salvation is purely by, and forgetting that our salvation is purely by the grace of God. And we start to look down on others who aren't doing as well as us as if we're better than them because uh, we're performing uh, and we're achieving and we're working our way. But on the other hand, if we forget that the faith which justifies is never alone, then we're vulnerable to feel safe even if our faith is phony. It's very dangerous when a person with no true faith thinks that he is safely saved because he thinks there's no need to worry about it. There's no need to think about it. There's no need to work at it. You just glide on through and go to heaven. But if his faith is not true, then the fact is he's not on his way to heaven. So that's a very dangerous way to be thinking. The bottom line is that true faith is not something human. It's not something people decide to have or decide to try. True faith is a supernatural gift of God. And this true God-given faith has a transforming effect or to put it another way, the God who calls people to himself and gives them faith continues that work and develops that work in them and transforms them into the image of his son Jesus. Like Paul, James believes in justification by faith alone. When used in the Pauline sense of those words. We can even see that in the book of James. In 1.18, for instance, he says, referring to God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he talks about bringing us forth, that's using birth imagery. As we come to be born again, born spiritually, we don't do it. He does. And it's not by our works, it's by his work. We are not born by our own choice or effort. And so he brought us forth by the word of his truth. So then, as Paul says in Romans 9.16, so then it does not depend on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. And another place where you can see that James believes in justification by faith alone is James 1.21, where he says the implanted word is able to save your souls. The implanted word is able to save your souls. So what saves our souls? It's not our own works. It's something which happens inside of us. It comes from outside, and then it's done to us and in us. And this thing done by God in our hearts 
that is able to save our souls. That alone is able to save our souls. And of course, as I said before, it's just the beginning of God's work. And like James, Paul believes... So I said that, like Paul, James believes in justification by faith alone. And like James, Paul believes that the faith which justifies is never alone. For he himself said in Romans 2.13, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. However, in this passage, we also see that there's a danger of false faith, of counterfeit faith. It's very possible to claim that we have faith, but not truly have faith. It's very possible to have all the right doctrinal convictions and yet be no better than a demon and no true believer at all. It's even possible to be fully convinced that you're saved and not be saved. And there are many Bible passages that talk about this. Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he continues, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it would be foolish in light of this reality to not be, for each of us who consider ourselves believers, to not be also circumspect when it comes to our own salvation. As Paul urged us, in 2 Corinthians 13.5 examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves and as Peter also exhorted in 2 Peter 1.10 be diligent to confirm your calling and election one of James' biggest emphases in his epistle is that faith must be lived out if it's true And we need to take this very seriously. James seems to have perceived a lackadaisical attitude among some Christians who had embraced salvation by Christ, but then felt no compulsion to conform their lives to him. Even though Jesus himself said, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples in John 8, 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, John 14, 21. And I think today we have much the same problem as James perceived in the church of his day. Many Christians feel so safe in their salvation and so relaxed in their destiny that there's no sense in which they, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, of course, Christian self-examination can be taken too far. All of us can find reasons to doubt our salvation. 
we're all very far from God's holy standard. And ultimately, our confidence is not in our performance, but in God's forgiveness through the cross. But there has to be some fruit of the Spirit. There has to be humility. There has to be a repudiation of the ways of the world to some degree. There has to be sincere love and compassion and generosity. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the neat things needed for the body. What good is that? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word for the chance that we've had this morning to grapple with it. Pray that you'd bless us in the aftermath as we ponder the things that were said and, and maybe look over the notes or look over the passage. Oh Lord, these aren't easy things and we pray that you would help us to digest them and, uh, and especially, dear Lord, that you'd help us to listen to you as you speak to us about the way that we think and the way that we live. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want to desire what he desires and, and despise and abhor the things that he would have us abhor. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would continue the good work that you've begun in us and Lord, if there are any within the hearing of my voice who, whose faith is dead faith and mere claimed faith, mere professed faith and not real faith, please open their eyes through this and wake them up and disturb them, dear Lord, for they're in a dangerous place and bring them O Lord, to the cross and to the Christ who paid the penalty there and who stands ready to forgive sinners, even sinners who repent of their fake faith. And now, Lord, what a blessing it is for us to come to the table of the Lord. We pray for your blessing upon us. For we gather, dear Lord, in the place where our hope rests. We gather at the cross where Christ gave his body and his blood for our forgiveness. Please be with us. Please renew our spirits through your presence, through your assurance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.